You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. Well, if you brought a Bible with you, feel free to open to Mark chapter 3 as we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark this morning. And feel free to pull the sermon outline out from your bulletin if that helps you follow along as well. Today we're going to look at a, pass, a short passage from Mark that Patty just read so well a moment ago that really contrasts two different postures towards Jesus. On the one hand, we're going to talk about the crowds, the crowds who press in on Jesus when they have need for him, when they feel like he's going to do something that they want or they can benefit from. And the other posture we're going to look at is the posture of the disciples or the apostles, the ones that are come to Jesus on Jesus' terms for Jesus' purpose and Jesus' aims. And these are really two different options that are in front of you and in front of me today. Do we follow Jesus based on what we think we can get out of it, when it's convenient to us and when we're interested? Or do we follow Jesus on his terms for his purposes and his goals as a disciple? Is your spirituality marked more like the crowds or is it more like the disciples? And this whole sermon over the next 25, 30 minutes or so is really going to be about that question that you and I have to answer. Do you want to have a crowd-like posture towards Jesus or a discipleship posture towards Jesus? Is your life going to be marked with a spirituality that, that is convenient for you or based on your terms or what you get out of it? Or is it based on Jesus' terms and what he calls you to and what he wants for you? And, you know, those two options are obviously not the only option in life. I mean, there's an option of being oppositional to Jesus or completely indifferent or completely apathetic or, you know, being an agnostic or an atheist. And and some of you might describe yourself that way. But we're sort of putting uh, those to the side for the purpose of this sermon and looking at, of people who were interested in Jesus— of people who maybe, if they had used the term at that time, would have called themselves Christians, what posture do they have towards Jesus? I imagine if you polled the people in the crowd who pressed in on him, they were fans of Jesus. They were interested in Jesus. Uh, They they had a bumper sticker on the back of their mule. Like they were were pro-Jesus, right? But there is going to be this divide and this question in front of them and in front of us of, do we have a crowd-like mentality or a discipleship mentality? A couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Don on New Year's Day uh, blessed us with uh, some Wayback Machine music, uh, played some gospel songs for us from the early 20th century. Uh, and we, I, I enjoyed getting to hear sort of some of the songs that would have marked the beginning of our church's period. Gospel music was really, po- really popular from the 1860s to 1960s, Don said. And uh, that was sort of the period that our church was founded in. And so some of these songs are close to some of your hearts, close to some of the founders of our church's hearts. So it's fun to get to hear that. Um, that's not necessarily my lifespan. And so while I enjoyed it, if you pricked my like, musical soul, what would come out is a different style of music. It was sort of the 1990s, early 2000s, Matt Redman, Chris Tomlin, David Crowder, Passion Generation songs. Any other people in their 40s? That's your heart music? A couple of you are nodding your heads. Okay. Um, those songs were marked with like extravagant expressions of commitment to God. And we would sing songs like Give Me One Pure and Holy Passion or Better Is One Day. And these are, are Blessed Be Your Name, that songs that really uh, shouted out to God our commitment to him. Uh, one of my favorites was Give Me One Pure and Holy Passion, One Magnificent Obsession, Jesus, give me one glorious ambition for my life, to know and follow hard after you. And I remember being at the Passion Conferences and and really meaning that for my heart. And now I'm in my 40s, in middle age, and I ask the question, the honest question, like, is that what my life has become? 
Or do I have a more crowd-like mentality that, that turns to Jesus when I, when I need something, when someone in my life that I care about is sick, or when I have questions about meaning or purpose, or when I'm trying to reconcile something in my mind, or when I'm trying not to get fired as a pastor, or, or whatever, you know, I'm, Admittedly, that last one's kind of eccentric to me. That probably is not transferable. Um, or, or, or is that song really the overflow of a life of discipleship? I wonder for you if that uh, resonates with sort of your experience of following Jesus. Uh, the crowd versus discipleship question. Hey, and this isn't a shaming question. This isn't meant to, to beat you up. I, there are some people in our church that I know have a very committed discipleship posture towards Jesus. We're going to have the memorial service for one of them this Saturday, uh, Kathy Elliott. Uh, if you knew Kathy, she was part of our church for decades, and she, her life was marked with a, uh, from, from what I could see from the outside, and obviously I'm not in her heart, but from what I could see, a, a commitment to following Jesus as his disciple. Uh, I met with her family to plan the memorial this week, and one of her daughters relayed the story of how every time she'd go in the hospital, which was a lot because she had arthritis for the last 50 years, she would come up with a plan for how she could talk to the nurses about Jesus. I can't imagine having that much of a commitment and a heart soft towards God. So um, I, I don't think that the answer is that all of us are crowd-like people and just need to do better. But I think for some of us, and, and sometimes in my own life, we're only mildly interested in Jesus. And the idea of knowing and following hard after him is an overstatement. I wonder, as we look through this passage today, if we can be honest with God and, and open our hearts to the question of, do I reflect more of the crowds or more of the disciples? Well, let's look at what that involves here and start here in chapter 3, uh, verse 7. Uh, let's talk about the crowds first. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him. And I'm about to read a bunch of places that, unless you have a map in your Bible, probably don't mean very much to you. But uh, just as I read them, know that these are all, it's like a perimeter. He's like painting a perimeter all around, talking about all the places around that they're coming from. From Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, from Tyre and Sidon. So he's kind of going north, south, east, west, everywhere around is coming from 100 miles around. And it says, when the great crowd heard all he was doing, they came to him. Now, this, of course, makes sense if you've been tracking with us through Mark, because Mark's healed a man who was paralyzed. He's healed a man with a withered hand. He's, he's been healing people with, with conditions that no medical explanation can be offered. And if you had someone like that in your life, and you lived in Judea or Idumea or Tyre or Sidon, you would pack up all you had or all you needed and get that person to him immediately. I mean, goodness, even today, even with modern medicine the way it is, if you heard that there was a cure for your cancer at the Mayo Clinic, how long would it take you to get to Minnesota? Like, you, you, would, you would drive all night if you had to, right? If there was only one option, you would do all you needed or all you could to get there. And so the crowd comes pushing in on Jesus as a result when the great crowd heard all he was doing, they came to him. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not disparaging the crowd for doing this. This makes all the sense in the world. But do you hear the underlying assumption of why they're coming? They're coming because of what they can get out of Jesus. They're coming because of what they can benefit from, from Jesus. In fact, that's the scene we see repeatedly in the Gospels and in the Gospel of Mark, is that the crowd wells up when they think there's something in it for them. And then, as in John 6, when Jesus challenges the crowd, they kind of dissipate just as quickly. The crowd's not good or bad. They're just a reflection of people like you and I. That, that when there's self-interest involved, they're very interested. And when there's cost involved, they become a lot less interested. 
And this is a reflection of your heart and of my heart. And it's a question for each of us. Is that our posture towards Jesus? That, that when I can get something out of you, I'm interested? When there's a challenge, I'm less interested. In that sense, uh, what's happened 2,000 years ago is very relevant and very reflective of our own hearts. Jesus responds uh, to the crowd with some distance here in verse 9. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around to touch him. Um, You can imagine the picture of of thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people pushing towards Jesus. Like the the worst Black Friday YouTube video you've ever seen, kind of out of control, trying trying to get towards him. And Jesus sets out in a boat, probably one of the fishermen's boats, maybe Peter and Andrews, a little bit out from the sea to at least get some space, at least get some distance. Uh, this is a fascinating picture of Jesus' humanity at work, right? That, that Jesus could be crushed by the people who are coming in to get something from him. Um, I, I love this picture because it, it shows us Jesus living within limits that you and I have in the same way. That, that he is only able to do so much or give so much, and he has to have some distance from the needs of those who are pressing in around him. Um, I don't think that the people in the crowd were intending to crush Jesus, but that is the collaborative effect of a desperate mob. Right? And it tells us something about ourselves. Now, let me just be honest, or let me, let me be clear about this. You know, some of you have kids, or maybe you've asked this question yourself, and you, you've heard the question, uh, how does God listen to all our prayers at the same time and decide what to do? I can't handle two people talking to me at the same time. How does God listen to eight billion people at the same time? And, and we sort of respond with, well, you know, God's infinite. He's not like us. He's not limited by space and time. He's not limited by, you know, one brain like we are. He's able to hold all these things in mind at the same time. God's not crushed by the demands of us. We we don't need to worry about crushing God with our hopes or dreams from him. But Jesus in his humanity, in his human nature, in addition to his divine nature, is able to be crushed by these things. And he needs some physical space in order to, to not be pushed over by the crowds in front of him. I do think it's worth asking this question, though. Uh, if Jesus could be overwhelmed by the crowds, who do you and I think we are not to think that we're overwhelmed by crowds as well? Right? Uh, the Benedictines, uh, which is a, an order of, of monks, have a rule that no one abbot, which is the ruler of their monasteries, can have more than 12 monks under his charge. Because if Jesus couldn't handle more than 12, who do you think you are? Right? <laughs> Some expressions of modern sociology affirm the same idea that say you can only have 16 or 17 close relationships in a human life. If you try to spread yourself out thinner than that, you'll just be discouraged and other people will be discouraged because none of us are made to have more close relationships than that. If you're living for the crowd, if your goal is to keep everyone happy with you all the time, now, admittedly, there's probably not a a literal throng of people outside your house unless Justin Bieber is here. But if you're trying to keep everyone happy and pleased with you all the time, it's worth looking at this passage and saying, even Jesus didn't try to please the crowd all the time. Maybe you and I should let go of that hope or aspiration. But the crowds also tell us something about ourselves, right? That just like them, we tend to come to God for selfish reasons. And and again, I'm I'm not being judgmental here because I'm in the same boat. But think about when you pray. Do you pray in in a regular way? Do you pray with intentionality? Do you pray whether you feel like it or not? Or, like most of us, do you pray when you need something from God? When someone you love is sick, or you have questions you can't resolve, or you're feeling frustrated about something? Do you just sort of pray reactively? Do you have kind of a crowd-like spirituality? 
One that when there's something you think you can get from God, you turn to him. You're not, you're not an atheist. You're not an agnostic. It's not that you ignore God all the time. But, but you only turn to him when you kind of feel like you need something. Or, or is there something more to it uh, than just how the crowd lived? Uh, John F. Kennedy famously said, Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Unfortunately, that hasn't been true of American history most of the time, and it's certainly not true of our spirituality most of the time. Instead of asking what we can do for God, we, ask, we tend to only talk to God when we feel like there's something he can do for us. It's a healthy question for us to ask, not just as a citizen, of course, but, but as a Christian. Ask not what God can do for me, but what I can do for him. I, I don't say that lacking humility, but, but rather than acting out of selfishness, right? Coming to Jesus as a disciple. Now, what was Jesus hoping would happen as he sort of pushed back from the crowds, right? Isn't this kind of the, kind of, I'm kind of being snarky here, but like, didn't Jesus kind of make this bed that he's lying in, right? You heal paralyzed people, word's going to get around. Like, uh, if you heal people whose hands are withered, other people with uh, problems are going to come to you and expect that to be done as well. Well, that's why you see this uh, theme of Jesus trying to avoid everyone uh, pressing in on him. This is what happens in verse 11. It says, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. This theme of Jesus trying to, to tamp down enthusiasm, and, and by enthusiasm here I mean sort of hysterical excitement, uh, comes up again and again in Mark, where Jesus warns people, hey, don't, don't tell everybody about this or else I'm not going to be able to go anywhere. Right? Don't tell anybody about this, or I'm not going to be able to proclaim the gospel in a way that people are going to listen to. We're just going to get hysterical crowds as a result. He does this a number of times in Mark. This is one of them. And uh, it shows up in this weird sense with the demons here. Okay, a uh, couple of comments. One, I don't love talking about demons, uh, both because I think spiritual warfare is real and also because I'm uncomfortable with it, and it, it's something that, that I don't, know that is healthful for us to spend a lot of time thinking about. But Mark's gospel talks a lot about demons. So we're going to come up against this again and again and again in Mark. So I promise we'll talk about it over the course of this year. In this passage, I think what's most helpful for you to see, though, is that Jesus wants the demons to not whip up the crowds into a frenzy because he realizes that's not going to help them or help the people around them hear the gospel. Even Jesus needed to consider the demands of the crowds on his life. Jesus was limited and so are you, right? If we don't take anything else away from Jesus' example in this passage, it's if Jesus can't give the crowds what they want all the time, then how do we expect to give the crowds what they want all the time? Usually when we talk about peer pressure in our culture, we use that phrase to refer to sin. We tell teenagers, uh, don't go hanging out with people. They're going to peer pressure you into doing things that are destructive or uh, going to get you in trouble or get you sent to jail, right? Like avoid that sort of peer pressure. And it's not just teenagers, of course. We, we say that even as we get older. Like, don't hang out with people that are going to make you bitter or cynical or angry, like watching the Dodgers. Like, th those things are just going to make you mad. Um, that's such a bad joke. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I regret that. Um, <clears throat> but in this case, peer pressure is not about being pushed into sin, but being pushed beyond your limits. The crowd's trying to push Jesus into a, a greater and greater sense of being able to do things beyond his uh, human capacity. As this happens again in John 2, Jesus responds by, 
When this happens in John 2, when he turns water into wine, it says Jesus did not entrust himself to them, to the crowd, because he knew the hearts of all people. He knew that the crowds take and take and take, and that if he gave himself over to the crowds, he may be popular for a time, but he would lose all trace of what he had come to do. I wonder for you and I, both as we look at ourselves in Jesus and we look at ourselves in the crowds, is that our, our posture towards God? That we sort of to push on him to do what we want him to do? Or if we look at ourselves in the posture of Jesus, do we look at the crowds to give us our sense of identity or purpose or meaning, sort of being pushed back and forth? Uh, either way, the result's the same, that rather than living his life as a disciple of Jesus, we get thrown back and forth by the passions and desires of this world. Well, of course, the crowds isn't the only option. It's not the only option for your spirituality or mine. There, there is another way to live uh, and another way that Jesus calls us to live, and that's life as a disciple. This is how he uh, responds to the crowds in verse 13. He went up on a mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, we'll talk about who these apostles are in a second, and uh, specifically their names that they're listed in verse 15. But uh, before we get to that, I just want to ask a question like, so why did Jesus do this? Why did he choose apostles at all? This seems so normal to us, especially if you've grown up around the Bible. It's just presumed, right? Like, of course there are 12 apostles. There have been 12 apostles my whole life. I've never really thought about why they're there. I mean, this, this wasn't normal to begin with. Let me just start with that. The term apostles, as far as scholars that I've read can figure out, had never been used by a religious figure before Jesus. It had been used as a, a political term, um, like the city of Jerusalem sent apostles to Rome to complain about a king one time. But it was never used in a, in a religious sense to refer to the followers of a teacher or of a rabbi. Jesus creates this concept that, that there would be people that he would set aside in order to send out in the future. That's what the term apostle literally means, one who is commissioned or sent with a message. And from the beginning of, you know, we're still relatively at the beginning of Mark, Jesus plans ahead and he says, we're going to need some people who are going to be sent out. And to be sent out first, they have to come and be with me. Now, in some ways, apostles are a unique period in uh, salvation history. But a lot of the principles about life as the apostles are transferable. And, and I think it's worth us asking, how does this reflect our frame or our posture towards Jesus today? So I want you to notice in verse 13 that it says that Jesus desired that they would come and be with him. He uses this with language or, or to be together with him twice, verse 13 and, verse in, and again in verse 14. And this is sort of the beginning of discipleship is to be with Jesus. Before we start thinking about what we're going to do for him or what message we're going to carry out or how our life is going to be shaped in, in our commission before him, it's to be with God. And for the crowds, there was a with Jesus sense that was based on their consumption, based on what they could get from him. They were only interested in being with Jesus on their terms of what they could uh, obtain from him. But this discipleship frame, this apostleship frame is about being with Jesus on his terms for what they could learn from him how they could benefit from community with him. And these 12 apostles, to their credit, will spend the next three years following Jesus everywhere he goes, living the way he's living, walking in his footsteps, observing him and being close to him. Now, obviously, you and I don't get to have that physical experience with Jesus today, but there is a question here of how much effort and intentionality do you spend at being with Jesus? 
I don't know why it struck me this week, but verses 13 and 14, that, that Jesus desired that they would be with him. I've just been rattling around in my heart a lot. Like, God wants to be with you. Jesus wants to be with you. That he, de- he desires that you would come and be with him. I'm not talking about heaven or eternity, but I'm just talking about, like, in communion with God. That that's something that Jesus desires for you to have. And part of the reason that he desires that is that he can send them out that he can distribute them to serve these crowds that are pushing in on him. It's not that Jesus is choosing the apostles at the expense of the crowd, but he's choosing the apostles for the crowd. These will be the 12 men who will take the message of the gospel to the nations over the rest of their life. Of them, 10 of them will die a martyr's death. Judas, of course, will die by suicide after he betrays Jesus. And John, the 12th one, will die in exile on Patmos. The rest of their life will be marked by carrying out this gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations, announcing his death, burial, and resurrection. Their life has been changed because of the message that they carry. Interestingly, the last thing that it says that they'll be commissioned to do is to cast out demons. Um, This is a way that they'll announce and expand the kingdom of God and and reflect the very actions that Jesus himself has done. Um, Now, okay, so I said we'd talk about who these 12 were. Um, and whenever we get to a list of names in the Bible, it can sometimes be a little tricky to not have our eyes glaze over when we're reading them on our own, especially if the names don't mean much to you. If you do your devotionals in the, in the genealogies, God bless you. But for most of us, we get to these lists of names and we say, yep, those are names. Some of them are the names I like, some of them I don't like. You know, what, what, do you, what do you do with these names? But I'm going to try my best to help us see the value of looking at this list of the 12 apostles and, and why this is in Scripture today. Um, it says in verse 16, He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, which, by the way, is not a name. No one else was named this. Uh, it just literally means rock. Uh, so Jesus makes up a name to give to him. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boaginus, Boaginers, that is the sons of thunder, which is an awesome name, but again, not a real name. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, son of Alphaeus and Judas and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12, most scholars would, would agree, most theologians would agree, are meant to represent the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, you'll see that uh, Israel literally the guy who was renamed Israel by God, had 12 sons, and those were known as the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and those 12, those 12 men, through their progeny, would make up the entire nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament. Jesus now, in choosing these 12 apostles, is making a similar claim, that he is the beginning of a new people. And it is through these 12 tribes, these 12 men, that would make up the people of God going forward. So he chooses 12 Jewish men, Continuity with the Old Testament, continuity with the Old Covenant. But it's not through their biological progeny, right? Not all Christians are descendants of Bartholomew or whomever. But it's through the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles' message, through their gospel, that we all trace our lineage. And what's that message? Well, one, it's the New Testament, right? The the apostles are responsible for the message of the New Testament. But it's also through the message of the gospel itself that has gone throughout all the earth that we trace our roots, and that we become part of the same people. Now, these 12 were not necessarily impressive in and of themselves. Uh, While there are sometimes shed in some faith-filled light, none of them have any mention of 
worldly influence or wealth. The only time we hear about their learning is in the negative, that people were amazed that these apostles could speak given that they had not done any rabbinical training. It doesn't seem like they were especially impressive <coughs> morally or ethically. I mean, we've got taxpayers and uh, Peter trying to get out of it a number of times. And they're not necessarily people that, that we would sort of stake our claim to if we were in Jesus' shoes. What seems to be most important about these 12 apostles is that Jesus called them and that he chose them more than anything specific about them. Um, what do we know about them? Uh, varying degrees. Obviously, Peter we know the most, and James and John become important later on, especially because of, James's, because of John's writing of the gospel that bears his name. And Andrew will be important mostly because of how he tends to bring people to Jesus repeatedly through the gospels. Others of the apostles we only hear about once or twice. Uh, Philip asks some important question at one time. Thomas is known for his doubt. And Judas, obviously, is the most infamous. Uh, we don't really know what Iscariot means. It might be a place name. It might be a sign that he had been a terrorist before. And Simon the Zealot is known for his zeal, which probably manifests itself in terrorism early on in his life. Some of the lists, um, each of the Gospels has a list of, of the disciples. Matthew, Mark, and Luke give it as a list. John kind of spreads it out over the course of his Gospel. But each of them are a little different. And sometimes this gives people pause. For example, in Matthew and Mark, we hear about... Uh, I'm sorry, in Matthew and Luke, we hear about Thaddeus. Here in, uh, here in Mark, we hear about, uh, I'm sorry, this is why I need to write it down. In Matthew and Mark, we hear about Thaddeus. In Luke, we hear about a man named Judas. Uh, the question, of course, is why? Why, do we, why does he change names? Well, if your name was Judas, you'd change your name in the early church too and go by a nickname. <laughs> That's the best answer I can give. Um, <laughs> Also, we see some of these nicknames show up in one list, but not the other. Is that a sign that there was lack of continuity? I don't think so. I think that's a sign that these are people trying to remember the names of the 12 apostles, and they go by different nicknames. After all, if I asked you to name the most recent presidents in American history, you may use different nicknames for some people than others. You'd say, well, there's FDR, and then there was Ike, and then there was, uh, or there was Truman, and then there was Ike, and then there was JFK. And you would say, well, there was no president named Ike. There was a Dwight D. Eisenhower. You say, well, it's the same person, right? Um, it's the same sort of idea here, that nicknames sort of reflect uh, historical accuracy more than historical uh, vulnerability. All right, well, apostles aside, is there value in seeing yourself in the apostles, uh, seeing sort of that reflection in you? In some ways, this is a very American question because we're talking about the apostles of Jesus from 2,000 years ago. And we'd say, yeah, I'm a lot like them. <laughs> it's American exceptionalism at work. Uh, and, and there are some ways that apostles are unique, right? They, they've seen the risen Lord. They've followed him in person. They're commissioned to bring the gospel to the nations. They're responsible for the New Testament. Those things are unique. Those aren't transferable today, no matter what someone on YouTube tells you when they call themselves an apostle. Um, but there are some principles here that are worth thinking about. They reflect a posture of being with Jesus, that, that their lives are marked, with, are marked by being with Jesus, living for Jesus, and living by Jesus. And that's kind of where I want to finish this last couple of minutes. How much does your spirituality marked by the crowds or reflected in the crowds? Do you just turn to God when you need something? Is, is it not that you're against God or against Jesus, but you just don't find much interest or use for him most of the time? Or as you look at the apostles, do you see more of what your heart longs for? A life that's marked by being with God, not just when you feel like it or when there's pain that comes up, but, 
but it's how you order your life is to be with Jesus. And you live not primarily for your own gain or your own ambition, but for Jesus, for his commission on your life. And you don't act out of your own power or your own strength, but you do things in the power of Jesus, by Jesus' authority. Um, I, I imagine it's probably not a, 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 a either-or, right? Most of us live somewhere in that gray middle, and we kind of shift back and forth from day to day. But I would encourage you to spend some time in prayer this week, sort of mulling this passage around in your mind with God, saying, God, this week, and, and even today, what would it look like for me to have a posture of discipleship more towards you? It, it's, it's not that I'm trying to avoid something or I'm scared of something, but, but I, I really long for and I desire to live a life that is pleasing to you, that is oriented towards you. I, I see how the crowds live in this passage, and I see that reflected in my own heart, and I, I don't want that. I, I don't want to be sort of tossed back and forth based on uh, the moment. I, I, I want to choose intentionally to follow hard after you, Jesus. Well, that's my prayer for you. That's my hope for you. And uh, let's, let's endeavor to do that together as a community. Let's pray. Jesus, we look at these 12 apostles that you chose, and um, we don't see anything impressive about them from the world's eyes, but we do see something impressive about your heart for them and your heart for us. Uh, God, we desire to uh, live lives of discipleship towards you, to, to desire to be with you, to desire to, to live lives for you and by your Spirit. God, help us to guard against the sort of um, feebleness and uh, soft-heartedness that comes with living like the crowd, sort of turning to you when we want something and ignoring you when we don't. Help us to, uh, to have a passion for you that transcends just the moment that, is or- that orders our life around following you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.